Hey guys, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch with us and follow our Instagram, Twitter, and Curious Cat socials at Abwan Podcast. Our TikTok is at Abwan Chronicles. Or even email us at abwanchronicles at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the team, check out our merch at abwanchronicles.com. And you can also buy us a coffee or purchase a monthly membership at buymeacoffee.com forward slash podcast. This season, we're coming with new episodes every first Wednesday of the month. Don't forget to turn on that notification bell. Welcome to the Abuan Chronicles podcast. This podcast is hosted by five black Muslim women. Hafsa, Ikran, Istahil, Sahra, and Umm Khair. This is your host Istahil, hailing from Edmonton, the city of the frozen, and home of the Oilers. Join us every month as we talk about our personal experiences, pop culture, identity, politics, and more. Human activities, from pollution to overpopulation. We hear it so much that it feels like a buzzword, but it is far from it. Climate change is a real and serious issue. How do we create a future in which both people and nature can thrive. Developing countries are at the front line of this battle. This is a crisis of epic proportion, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Humanity will not be saved by promises. Welcome, guys, to another episode of the Abuan Chronicles podcast. This episode is our March episode, and it's an exciting one. This time around, we're talking about climate change and all that it entails, including the definitions of the words like, what's a climate change? What is climate crisis? What are these words? What's an activist? What's climate justice? This episode, we're going to cover all of that and all the minuscule topics that get thrown around a little bit on Bitcoin, a little bit on what governments are doing, a little bit on Alberta and the oil capital. So on this episode, you have me, Istahid, your host, as well as our other host, Ikran. And we have a reoccurring guest with us on this episode. We have Juwedia. Hi, everyone. Welcome back, Julia. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're always here for our activist episodes. Right? I know, she's here for the woke ones, you know, where it needs a lot of brain power. She gotta come through. Oh, crying. So, why did we decide to do an episode on climate change? Honestly, we felt like this was a topic we don't usually talk about amongst ourselves, amongst the listeners, but also because I was sick and tired of Tim Hortons paper straws. Like, I'm going to be honest and say it. Mm, I was sick and tired of those soggy papers, and this was me. I was sick and tired of it. 2020. Two years in, and they're the worst inventions that have ever been made. And so I decided to repurpose that energy into like productive energy and like make an episode on what climate change is and realizing, you know, maybe there's a need for why I'm suffering the way I am, you know? Maybe there's a reason why companies have decided to go this route and it's actually needed or not. We'll find out in this episode. The more I learn about what's going on the more depressing it is you know when they say ignorance is bliss like that's low-key how i felt but obviously you know like that shouldn't be the mentality but at the same time it's so depressing it's such a fatalistic topic i guess you can say because what can we as individuals do against these you know corporations yeah it feels like a very helpless scenario because i remember i was listening to a podcast i think it's how to save our planet they were literally talking about like the greenhouse emission gases and stuff like that from these big companies and the episode was actually about like whether or not on an individual level we can make change and there Mm -hmm. were obviously conflicting views but honestly i finished that episode thinking like actually there's absolutely nothing that me as a person can do because when you look at like the 
tons of gases that like a single company is releasing versus like thousands and hundreds of thousands millions of people even what we you know release per day and like how we function it's not even close i guess part of what we're going to talk about is like our duty as muslims as well and how that kind of fits into it so like you know as muslims it's our responsibility to contribute good things to the environment and obviously not harm it Mm -hmm. so what do you guys think of like when you think about climate change like do you actually think about it though in a day-to-day basis or is it just like something that hits you in the face whenever you see Greta Thunberg on your timeline I mean probably recycling (laughs) I've got like an espresso machine and it comes with pods and they send you like a bag to like recycle all the pods and send it back sacrificing your coffee your Starbucks coffee I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm like, ooh, like, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but I'm recycling it. So like, I feel like that is how I think about it, I guess, in my everyday mm-hmm. life. I, I would say it's kind of like an abstract idea. I read about it. I think the like when I actually like woke up to the entire conversation of climate change is when a long time ago, I went to this this conference that David Suzuki was talking about. And he was talking about how we're in the last minute of the last hour. And he kept repeating that. And he was extremely like serious about it like everybody was just like what do you mean the last minute of the last hour so like in 60 seconds everybody's just gonna die basically i was taking it literally and i was just like okay what does he mean by this so i had to like you know research like what he meant about how like dire the environmental uh, situation is and that's when i kind of woke up to everything like i became conscious of my like my surroundings regarding it but for me today is exactly how Akron says I recycle like I do my part but I don't know how you know effective it is yeah Mm -hmm. but yeah it's very hard to like try to figure out ways to really cut down on certain things that we need I know they also tell us to like take more public transport and stuff like that but it's like it's not the most convenient depending on where you're going yeah like it's not it it doesn't always work out and people are taking transit a lot of times are not doing it intentionally because they care about the environment it's because they have to Mm -hmm. you know not only that but like a lot of people like they do feel helpless specifically for me like every time people are just like oh i have to drink with paper straws when these people are taking like jets all over the world Mm -hmm. you know but me specifically i can say stuff like that as like a joke like or on twitter or something like that but i just worry about what i do in in real life i don't really care about like all these people with their jets i think they're hypocritical and for like always being like into environmental stuff and then doing it at the end of the day you know i have to account for who i am as a person regarding this right i guess it's it's nice to know why you do stuff like the motivations so like the islamic aspects of it like taking care of trees like even in wartime you're not supposed to break down trees and and, you know like caring for your environment and like when you go and you see like a tsunami happening a hurricane happening you know the ice melting and then you're getting new viruses that you haven't seen in years, new diseases that you've never seen in years, you know, countries that are going to be lost in a couple hundred years underwater because of rising water levels. That kind of stuff is like real life people are dying. Mm-hmm. When I see that, that is what motivates you because I'm like, mm-hmm. are you serious? Like people are living their best lives and like, you know, causing so much harm. First of all, fossil fuel companies, like literally so much harm to the environment. And then it's directly impacting people's life as in people are dying because of it you know so to me i think that's the main motivation right so mostly from a as a muslim person like why should i care about the environment what is my duty towards this planet that is amana 
if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, because again, I feel like whenever we're doing these episodes is when I'm researching stuff and their relation to Islam. Like, obviously, I know, you know, as Muslims, we need to take care of the environment. Like, that's kind of almost a no brainer, right? So, I was mostly trying to look into, you know, like what's out there that kind of really uh, solidifies this, right? And I, I was reading that there was a verse that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Baqarah, um, verse 30, your Lord said to the angels, I am placing upon the earth a human successor to steward it. So that like we were put on this earth to, you know, take care of the environment, uh, take care of the earth, right? Like we're not supposed to be causing it more harm. And then I found a Yaqeen article that was titled, When the Earth Speaks Against Us, Environmental Ethics in Islam. And the end, the author wrote something that I was really like, wow. And he was like, when we enter the court of the Almighty and are called to trial, witnesses will be brought forth forth i wonder whether the earth will act as a witness for us or against us and that really made me like think about you know how we contribute you know positively or negatively to planet earth and whether or not we're going to get a testimony from the earth if it's going to be against us or for us i thought that was really really interesting it's gonna be like this is what you did on this planet right so 100 the the planet is a manna to us honestly and on top of that it's like we want to have good air or Mm -hmm. we want to have generations after us and after us to live a good life you know a healthy life not being sick and all that stuff and it's easily fixable quote-unquote easily you know that's very (laughs) relative term relative very relative but like it is fixable it's something that can be done and it's you know it's something that we should have more people you know wanting to be done Mm -hmm. but when i think about climate crisis i think about people who are very dishonest in the west i think of like you know politicians and celebrities we're not gonna name celebrity (laughs) celebrities you know i feel like it's the most i guess you could say non-controversial activism they can take without hurting their brand i think about nfts i think about bitcoin and bitcoin mining i think about crystal mining coal mining and all those things i think about how like bitcoin mining which is basically crypto yeah cryptocurrency mining is basically when you know there's you have to someone sends for example someone sends a bitcoin to another person how do you verify that how do they make sure it's a valid transaction so that's what where mining comes into so people a lot of people like they solve these mathematical issues to find like a key to add the block or the transaction into a blockchain to find the math problem and the key it takes so much energy so much time to give you guys like a good idea of how much electricity it takes it takes about like a hundred thousand visa cards is one bitcoin transaction or the equivalent to giving electricity to a house for a whole month one bitcoin transaction oh wow yeah and they do like one bitcoin transaction every 10 minutes and it's like you know the more people are able to solve these quote-unquote math problems to find the key for the bitcoin the more energy they need because the more complex the math problems are getting so just imagine how much energy it takes and you know they also say like you know we use renewable energy and it's not really true it's kind of dishonest they use about like i think 30 to something percent renewable energy and the rest is just like you know normal electricity from like fossil fuels so the effect it has on the environment is like catastrophic moving from that like normal mining i decided to like do this episode with you guys because i I was so triggered by crystal mining um not crystal mining specifically but like mining in general like i you know i don't mine 
crystal girls and crystal people. I just mind how commercialized it is, how they present crystals as, you know, crystal is like healing, crystal is like, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. There's like so much mystery surrounding where they get their crystals from. And, you know, sometimes crystals like, you know, the amethyst and stuff like that, they are uh, by, yeah, topaz, they're like byproducts of like normal mining, like, you know, for like our phones, they all of the parts of our phones. Yeah, all of the, and it's just like, you know, oh, phones are necessary. I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, Necessary is like a relative term when you're talking about like child slave labor in Congo. Oh, we need them to do our our iPhones and stuff like that. I don't understand people that try to play those devil's advocate games. It's all wrong and there is alternatives. It's just they don't value those lives there. That's why they're they're doing that, right? But sometimes they do specific crystal mining. And that I have such an issue with crystal mining because like, you know, the people get sick. It's like soil erosion, so much water contamination. So when you say like, you know, Africa needs clean water, a very small percentage of fresh water in the African continent is used by the people because the rest is contaminated because of the exploitation of the continent. I think a lot of this climate change conversation is um, not taken seriously because the people it hurts are people that look like us, like people from our countries. Yeah, people that do not matter. And nobody cares because like they are too busy taking advantage of their resources. That's the biggest issue I have with climate change. Also, I would like for all these uh, billionaires to stop using space as an excuse for doing (laughs) How about they take care of our planet? They're literally doing so much mining and so much more uh, issues on our planet and saying, we're going to Mars unacceptable conditions why are you guys looking for anything on mars the billionaires and these rich people like they're the ones who really need to be checked and again like i think it goes back to like the fact that this climate change conversation is really made to be like an individual problem people who you know otherwise really don't even contribute much whereas you know like these rich people are allowed to fly their private jets fly their freaking rockets out to space you know they can you know do whatever they want for the uh super bowl apparently like there were like so many people like celebrities who left in private Mm -hmm. jets like that's their means of transportation from like whichever cities that they come from and so it's really like a us problem where like you mentioned you know the paper straws the like you know that i'm recycling my nespresso pod like that's that's supposed to change the world making us think that you know we actually can make a change whereas like the people who actually have the power to make a difference will just watch from the sidelines you know 100 that's the most important thing is awareness i guess and like spreading the information and really putting pressure on these governments and these corporations to really change this conversation in general is really exhausting but this episode was more so to Honestly, just have a conversation about climate change and like, you know, see what we can talk about, answer all the questions we have and hopefully answer some of the questions you guys have. Just do your part, you know, it's bleak. Yeah. We out here in this, you know, barren <laughs> wasteland called the dunya. You know, wallahi, I swear some people will listen to this and they'll be like, we're all going to die anyway. Why are you guys so... And what do you call it? Anal about this? Yeah, <laughs> those people are gonna say that, and you know, and they're right. But we want to live our best life. Literally, we want to live our best life. We want to do our best, and we want to take care of this planet that is once again in Namana. 
to that point, I also saw like two hadith that were talking about that, that I'm going to add just for like, you know, anyone who thinks that, which I mean, I guess it is a valid thing to think, but the Prophet said, if any Muslim plants a tree or sows a field and a human bird or animal eats from it, it shall be reckoned as charity for him. And then there's another hadith that says, if the day of resurrection comes upon anyone of you while he has a seedling in hand, let him plant it. So even if like the day of judgment is coming and you can plant a seed, then that's something you should do. So even if we think ultimately we're know we are dying like we know that like why should we care you still should it doesn't matter like if it's not for us you know the next generation this earth is a mana for us and we should take care of it and do the best that we can right irrespective of whether we're here to see it and that's that on that okay now that we've said our piece what about the facts the science we asked dr daniel swain climate scientist at ucla and author of weather west a california weather blog all about these dire warnings. Well, I'm a climate scientist, and that actually means uh, slightly different things to slightly different climate scientists. In my case, it means I actually study the the atmosphere itself, the behavior of the, the fluid that is the air that we breathe. What that really means is that I, I study not just long-term changes in climate, but also short-term variations in weather. And so the kinds of things that I personally study as a climate scientist are how climate change is affecting things like floods and droughts and storms and wildfires. So these sorts of extreme but episodic events that sort of manifest as these short-term weather variations. You know, for me personally, a scientifically interesting topic, but more broadly, I think it's sort of really at the interface of how uh, the changing world affects all of us in society. Uh, so I think that it's one of those things that is is kind of inescapable no matter where you live uh, on the planet today. I guess we'll get into a little bit more about the major extreme weather changes and that kind of stuff. From our perspective, we're talking about climate change. But whenever we bring this up, people are always like, okay, like you said, it's episodic. Nothing new that's happening. The world has ended a few times. What's the difference this time around? Or they completely deny it. And they're like, you know, they're not even skeptical about it. They completely deny it. And they're like, oh, that's just, you know, doom and gloom world end type of narrative and we don't believe in that what's like something that you always tell people to underscore like how real this is like how real the climate crisis is well i think there's a few um real indicators that are i hesitate to say they're impossible to ignore since i think some folks still manage to do that but i think that they're they're really difficult to ignore uh, when you're really paying attention and and that's you know how changes in the the frozen landscape have evolved in recent decades and the fact that you know the, the there is a very specific temperature threshold there are a few of them but one of the ones that matters most on this planet that we inhabit is the freezing point water is frozen below a certain temperature and not frozen uh, and is liquid instead above a certain temperature and what we see when we look around the world uh, very different places, you know, the Arctic, the Antarctic, the high mountains, cold times of year, so just winter in general, what we see is that there are pretty dramatic shifts in all of these periods, in all of these locations, regarding what the frozen landscape was known in the, in the scientific field as the cryosphere is doing. In other words, 
ice melts when it gets warmer. And we're see a lo- seeing a lot of melting ice, both in the oceans, mountain glaciers, less snow in winter in many places where there used to be a lot of snow. So this is the kind of thing that I think ends up being visceral for certain people who live in these places where these changes have been quite profound. And I suppose not all of us do live in those places uh, where you can have that freezing point thermometer so obvious uh, in your day-to-day life. But that's one of those things when you look at the globe overall, and you see just how much ice is melting in just so many different contexts, it's really sometimes shocking to see how much things have changed even over just a couple of decades. I mean, we're not even talking about, you know, centuries or or millennia like we normally would be talking about, you know, in a geologic context or even in some cases millions of years. We're talking about things that have evolved. You know, I'm relatively young. I'm in my early 30s and virtually everything I study is dramatically different. Uh, mm-hmm. today than it was when I was born. And that's not a long period at all in the context of the Earth's geologic past. And to folks who say that, you know, climate has, has changed before, why is this any different? It is, of course, true that the climate has changed before many, many times, countless times, both before we were here and since we've been here. But the really big difference is what we're seeing today is essentially millennial scale changes over the course of just a portion of a human lifetime. It's it's the dramatic acceleration of the pace of change that we would expect to see from natural variations in, in climate. And so that's really where all the problems come from. If the earth was warming two or three degrees centigrade over the course of 50,000 or 100,000 years, I wouldn't be too worried about it. I don't really think any climate scientist would be too worried about it. The problem is we may warm two or three degrees centigrade over the course of just a few decades. And for humans and for the ecosystems we care about and depend upon, that's just an incredibly rapid rate of change. Yeah, you know, that is actually one of the questions I wanted to ask. Like, how fast is it actually changing? Is it like continuously becoming faster, as in shorter and shorter at the time of change, or is it slowing down, or basically how close are we to do? Well, there's a few good questions in there. I'll start with the first one about the rate of change. The warming that we've seen so far, well, it certainly isn't slowing down. Uh, I'll, I'll say that much. But it also isn't necessarily speeding up either. We're actually just seeing, for worse, I would say, I was about to say for better or for worse, but it's pretty clear which <laughs> side of the, the spectrum this falls on. It's relatively gradual warming in a global sense, pretty much in line with predictions. Gradual does not mean uh, low impact, though. That does not mean that it's not consequential. It just means that the warming itself isn't accelerating. And acceleration has a very particular meaning uh, in, in science, essentially, that each increment is larger than the previous increment. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, if the warming were accelerating in some dramatic fashion, that would be an even bigger problem because it would mean that perhaps there wasn't a lot that we could do. Perhaps the system was just careening out of control and there wasn't a lot we could do to stop it. That's not really where we are today. And I kind of like to use the analogy of imagine if you're in a in a train going downhill and the speed of the train is increasing and you're becoming increasingly alarmed about the speed of this train as it goes down the hill and there's some steep curves ahead. Sometimes folks assume that the analogy is that the brakes have failed on the train and that there's no way to stop it. And then eventually, at some point, the train is just going to careen off the tracks. But I think the analogy that's probably closer to the real world from a physical science sense is... We're on this train going increasingly fast downhill, but the brakes are perfectly functional. 
It's just that the conductor or the engineer is deciding not to apply the brakes. It's an active choice not to use the brakes. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the warming, that the ocean warming and rising sea levels would be one of the most uh, catastrophic results of climate change in general, like one of the main things that we need to address as a society? Well, it's probably one of the ones that would be the the most inescapable and probably affect the most people most quickly. There are other aspects, I think, that are arguably even more dangerous, quote unquote. But in terms of the, the number of people globally who live within a meter of sea level, you know, most of the world's or many, at least many of the world's megacities exist at on coastlines of oceans. And many of those cities have at least a significant fraction of the population living, you know, within a few feet of sea level. The thing that scares me a little bit about sea level rise is it's very likely that we'll see one to two feet additional sea level rise this century at a minimum. You know, I know there's a lot of things going on in the world at this very moment in time, but if you look specifically for the natural hazard events that are linked, you know, to climate, there are actually a lot of very major, you know, flood events and and drought events unfolding right now as we're doing this interview globally. Some of these, you know, are are causing massive displacements and, you know, some of them are causing famines. And it's something that I think almost gets lost, you know, in the noise with everything else going on. And there are, you know, we, sometimes you hear about tipping points or thresholds when we talk about climate change. And there are some in the physical system, but the ones I worry more about are in the human systems in society where people are okay up to a certain point. And this is the case when you see droughts and there's, you know, crop losses yeah. You have enough food until you don't. And then all of a sudden it becomes yeah. a much greater crisis. But another part of the challenge is that none of these sorts of natural events or, or, or disasters occur in, in isolation from, you know, the, the, the societal and political context. Uh, and I think that in a lot of cases amplifies, unfortunately, the consequences of these extreme events. If climate change makes, say, droughts more severe or floods more severe in a particular place, it's sort of going to amplify whatever pre-existing vulnerabilities there were in that particular place. The reason I bring that up is, you know, one, to point out that it's, you know, having a drought in California does not have the same impacts on the people living there as a drought in Somalia. But also, it points to, you know, one of the things that we can do to intervene, even if climate change continues to make the physical hazards worse, you could have a world where you see more severe droughts, more severe floods, more extreme heat waves, but those events don't necessarily cause any more harm than they used to because we've supplemented society's ability to respond to them adequately and actually put into place measures to greatly mitigate the impacts. And so that's sort of the other side of the coin there is that it, it, it can amplify pre-existing vulnerabilities. But thinking about disasters, even climate-caused disasters or climate-linked disasters in the context of how we can address them and make them less bad for people points to the fact that there there's a whole other half of the, the equation, which is you know, how do we prepare society? How do we adapt? How do we plan for this? How do we respond? 
you mentioned that in like about a century, you'll see these major, major changes from where we're sitting. It's like, you know, a hundred years from now. Do you think that beyond us seeing like the drought and the famine, how it's affecting, there's going to be a more global awareness to it? Like there's going to be a moment where people have to acknowledge it um, within the next couple of 50 years or so? You know, one of the interesting things is that a lot of the things that had been predictions, say 20, 25 years ago, have in the past five or 10 years become reality. Mm, cool. And so I think this is one of the big challenges is that I think 20, 25 years ago, you would have asked scientists, could we possibly get to the point 25 years from now when these predictions will, you know, they'll either come true or they won't. And if they come true, how could we possibly still be ignoring it? Well, yeah. that seems to be exactly what happened. And so we could say the same thing about 25 years from now. But I think that, you know, if we really haven't, if we haven't done a lot to address this problem 25 years from now, we're going to be in pretty big trouble mm-hmm. since, you know, that's this, that's, that's this, this train analogy. And you know, I mentioned earlier, I mean, the good news is that it's the train still has functional brakes. The bad news is if we don't use the brakes, it's as if they didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. On that note, like the conductor wise, what is something that we can do as a society. How effective is paper straws? Or is this something that people uh, do just to get the guilt out of the way? Then individually, what's something that we can do as well to, you know, pump the brakes on this uh, running train? Yeah, I think that really is the question. I think that's really at the heart of of all of this uh, when it comes to climate change and where we're headed next. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, what's really interesting is that it, it turns out, following some investigation, that the whole idea of a personal carbon footprint was something mm. that was dreamt up by oil companies. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> as part of a PR campaign to suggest that only you can personally prevent global warming, uh, um, yeah. which deflects the blame from where it really should rest, uh, which is not individual people living their lives. It is the It is sort of the societal structures and the entities that have sort of constrain the choices that people have to be choices that are bad for the environment. But the reality is we won't solve global warming if everybody uses paper straws. You know, while it's great to have energy efficient lighting, we're also not going to solve global warming even if everyone switches out their light bulbs. These are good things to do at the margins, and many of them are, are good to do anyway for other reasons that don't even have to do with climate change. But ultimately, global warming is a global problem that is going to require large-scale global solutions. And so I think the most effective individual actions that people can take at this point are to really demand better choices. But does it balance out us doing individual work, like getting straws, recycling, and all that stuff? Does it balance out with one jet, for example? (laughs) Someone flying a private jet. I think that's the problem is it's so asymmetric. And the the some of the individual actions that, that are, that could be taken in a universal sense are small relative to some of the, the the individual actions that act in the opposite direction. And so really, you know, it's societal scale shifts. You know, we need to be able to, you know, you might have heard electrify everything because then we can switch a lot of this energy generation over to renewables and then a lot of the things. We, so the, the answer isn't, you know, and sometimes people say, oh, so you're saying we should stop using electricity and, you know, go, go live in a cave and, you know, no, that's not what anybody serious is suggesting. You know, many energy good things to the world. And there are still places in the world that are have great energy poverty, actually, and great imbalances from one region or one country to another, or even within countries. So the idea is not to stop using energy to 
to better society. The idea is to think about where we generate that energy so that it doesn't have these massive negative effects on the society and the environment and the world in general. And so there are, you know, it's, it's, it's choices like that. And sometimes it's, sometimes that even involves people ask me like, well, why do you, why do you drive a car? The answer is, well, unfortunately, in a lot of contexts, the places where people need to go in many cases, in many countries, there really aren't alternatives. We don't have well-developed public transportation infrastructure in, in many places. And so sometimes it's on a local scale, one way to enable people to make better choices is to install really effective, comprehensive public transportation so that you don't need to drive. Yeah. You know, that's one example of a system that you, 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 in, unless there's an alternative available, you can't make the better choice realistically to live your life. Uh, do you think that um, the collective frustration uh, towards individuals has been like derailing the climate change conversation for like decades now instead of uh, people putting those frustration towards like policymakers and corporations that are responsible for a lot of the, the issues that we have in the world? I think that the answer is largely yes, although with some important exceptions. I mean, you can drive top-down change from bottom-up pressures, right, in the right context. That you, that can be done. It hasn't really worked that way in practice on the large scale, but there are some specific examples where it has. But I, I you know, and that's that's why I mentioned that the whole notion of you know the personal carbon footprint is a, is came out of you know the the fossil fuel PR industry, which is that. That was why that became something that was shared in the first place. That's why you saw all these online calculators, is because it was effectively a delay tactic. It was a tactic that was used once the you know the, these folks realized that well, we can't pretend it doesn't exist anymore. So what we need to do is try yeah. and try and encourage the least effective way of addressing it that would enable the status quo. I mean, that may sound a little bit cynical, but there's actually some some pretty compelling investigative journalism and peer-reviewed reports that suggest, in fact, this is exactly what happened. In fact, there have even been some some personal interviews with former PR and energy executives who have literally said as much out loud to cameras. So I think, the, you know, one of the ways to think about this moving, you know, and constructively is, and this is something that always surprises me as well, is that when they do public opinion polls, the, many people, in fact, a majority of people in North America, at least, uh, both correctly recognize that climate change is real and at least an abstract problem. But on the other hand, also a majority of people do not recognize that it's likely to threaten any aspect of their own personal lives. And Mm -hmm. the majority of people also report that they don't hear about climate change in day-to-day conversation. Most people report that in an average week, they hear about it zero times. This is something anybody can do. It doesn't matter where you live or what your means are. Talking about climate change not just in the context of some abstract academic topic, but like climate change in the context of, oh, yesterday was the warmest, you know, March 1st on record. Isn't it interesting how we're seeing a lot more of those these days? Um, yeah. Family and friends, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, casual conversation. I mean, one of the, one of, one of the, the stereotypical innocuous, you know, stranger conversations is just chatting about the weather. Why not inject climate change conversation into that level of casual conversation? So there's that. So at a minimum, you can talk about it because that's part, that's, that's half the battle is getting people to think about it on a regular basis. And then beyond that, it's, it's really considering climate change when you sort of are an active participant in civic society, when you vote 
or when you show up at a, at a public meeting or whatever venue you have to voice your concerns and exert your, you know, whatever power you have in whatever context, talking about it and then making this one of those things that you think about when you make those decisions and when you exert your strengths, I think is really important. And these are things that, you know, virtually anybody can do. What keeps you motivated as a climate scientist to go to work every day in sort of like this grim sort of career where you know so many things that people flat out refuse to believe? I think first and foremost, it's the fact that we are on this train moving faster and faster downhill, but we're not on the train where the brakes are broken. And I'm really trying hard to convince the, the driver of the train to apply apply the brakes. To wake up. <laughs> yeah, wake up, please, um, before, before we get to that sharp bend on the mountainside. And, you know, I think it would be different if it were truly the case that all hope were lost and that there was nothing we could do about it. I think this would be a different conversation. You can find Dr. Daniel Swain on Twitter at weather underscore West. So now we know the how and kind of the when of the train crash. But what about the people on the train? Mahmoud from Haru, a rapid relief organization, will tell us about the on-the-ground reality of a devastating drought and what we can do to help support. First of all, it's good to make my when debut, you know what I'm saying? Really big time now, big leagues. But this is Mahmoud Mohammed, executive director of HADO. HADO is the humanitarian African relief organization based here in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. But we do have offices in San Diego, California, Windsor, Ontario, and uh, our main field office based out of Mogadishu. But we have satellite offices in Garoa, Kismayo, Hargeisa, and in Nairobi. Can you tell us a little about the kind of relief you offer and what exactly you guys target? Yeah, so Huddle, just like a quick history lesson, Huddle was founded in the year 2003 by a gentleman named Ali Abdinur Haji in San Diego, California. He's uh, until now the president and director, well-known community and religious leader in San Diego who really saw a need kind of for a humanitarian actor. In the space in the early 2000s, him and a couple of his buddies uh, in San Diego at the time, they decided to found this organization. And primarily what they would do is they would respond, um, they would do kind of communal fundraising pools anytime a drought occurred. And because uh, droughts occur in Somalia fairly uh, frequently, he was always on the move. And so they really incorporated in 2006 and then they began to fundraise kind of in earnest and, and develop a kind of a, a really robust program. Huddle works across sectors, but primarily we do water solutions, so building wells, maintaining wells. We have an orphan care uh, branch. We have an orphanage based in and operating in Hamad that has 300 orphans who are clothed, fed, and sent to school. And uh, we do youth employment initiatives, primarily in our Gedowa office. Kind of what we're most famous for is rapid relief uh, fundraising. So Anytime there's a drought, we're hoping to be kind of the number one uh, nonprofit that helps to fill that need. And so that means raising funds and then uh, sending money either in the form of direct cash payments and cash assistance or, or buying uh, food supplies and foodstuffs to distribute uh, to those who are suffering. Hado was a main uh, actor in the ground, on the ground uh, during the 2011 drought, 2017. We were right there partnering with the uh, UN aid, uh, UNISOM. And then now, so I started this job on October 1st, 2021, and since then, we've been kind of immersed in drought uh, relief efforts since I first came into office and up through today, doing that every single day. Wow. No, mashallah, you guys are doing amazing work, honestly. I, I feel like I just found out about Hado recently, but the work that they've been doing is really transformative and it's amazing. So I, I, I want to backtrack a little bit of like, what is a drought and, you know, what 
typically causes drought. So we know Somalia, we have droughts pretty frequently. So, you know, if you could explain, you know, what's causing these droughts. Yeah. So let's do a quick uh, geography lesson, economy style. I know that is not your strong suit in school. <laughs> you know what? It's not. So it's okay. <laughs> no. So what do you guys, what do you guys think uh, Somalia's, how would you describe Somalia's climate, its geography, topography? What do you guys know about it? Diverse. That's pretty much all I know. Style. Hot. Two points for you, style. You're showing up economy right now. It's kind of hot. That's the best you got. <laughs> Hot. It's okay. This is not a test. Just keep going. Okay, you don't need to be testing. It's not a test. You're you're not wrong. You're not wrong. No. So you're right. Um, Both of you are correct. So Somalia does have a current. uh, It has a what we call an arid or or semi-arid climate, but. To Stylus' point, Somalia does have a very uh, diverse geography. So the northern plateau, um, so we're talking like Nugal, Senag, very mountainous, hilly. Then as you go further south, it gets drier and drier. And then it suddenly becomes this kind of this luscious, kind of foresty, really green and kind of tropical climate as you get cl- uh, further south into Konfur. And so Somalia's climate cycle, right, is based off of this idea that there are a northeast monsoon that uh, comes in from December to February, at which t- at which point temperatures in the north they become really moderate, and the south gets really hot. And then there's a southwest monsoon from May to October when the north is really hot, and the south obviously then becomes really cool. But the Somalia's climate is kind of in between those two, right? So these two monsoon seasons, which uh, heat and cool the north and the south at different times respectively, and so. Drought happens when there's an imbalance in that monsoon system. And so, uh, so when I, right when I came into office in October, there was an immediate crisis in what we call uh, Konfur, right? So the lower Jubas uh, and Gedo, areas which at that time of the season, they should have been seeing moderate to kind of heavy rains, right? And so the rains didn't come. And because of that, you got to remember, people are pastoralists. People are deeply dependent on uh, kind of livestock and crops. And so when the rains don't come, land gets dry, wells dry up. There's no fresh water, rainwater, and boom, there we have it, uh, a drought. And so that's really what's been happening. And then uh, as the months went on, the northern regions and the central regions of the country were supposed to be experiencing their rainy season, and then they came late. Um, and this obviously has a kind of a domino effect and across the Somali yeah, territory. Yeah, I feel like by the time people need rapid relief, it's too late sometimes. So it's too yeah, late. it's too, it's, it's too so late. it's kind of crazy. Well, I guess because it's conflict ridden, it's hard to prevent things like that. You wouldn't even imagine it, man. Like for your average, and I don't say this to be rude or you know abrasive, but your average diaspora Somali who's living in kind of the Western world, so whether that's Europe, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they're just so deeply removed from the actual on the ground reality that it doesn't even occur to them. And so when when droughts do happen, people are like, oh yeah, okay, it was it was bad. But I don't think people really understand the monumental uh, loss of life that occurs very rapidly when drought um, sets in. And so you're absolutely right. People are forgotten. And, and so often the, our challenge at Huddle is even me, what keeps me up at nights is like, are we doing uh, too little too late? Are we just being reactive? Yeah, because they are things that I guess we keep seeing time and time again. I wonder, like, are there any sustainable solutions besides, you know, you know, fundraising and sending money and potentially it being too late? Are there any potential solutions that can be done in Somalia or, you know, wherever these droughts are happening that can, you know, mitigate some of these catastrophic issues? Yeah. So some some of the, and, and this is something that we think about every day on the job, right? So we're trying to see if we can invest in preventative measures against desertification. So 
planting crops and seeds that we know keep at bay or abate the, the rapid progress of, of a fertile, luscious land becoming desert, desert-like. desert So that's something we're thinking about very often. We're working with the Corps of Engineers and Water Engineers uh, who are, alhamdulillah, born and raised in the country, uh, went to school in the country, who find employment through Haro and Haro's offices. And so that's something that we always think about, encouraging people to not rely on burning down and cutting down uh, vegetation and trees that act as barriers to that desertification. So that insistence on coal energy is also very concerning. So trying to get people to adopt solar powered solutions, trying to invest in wind farms. I know that this is taking off kind of in, in, in Somaliland and some of the northern regions. And so uh, responsible irrigation, responsible water use, uh, responsible water caps and in areas where that's a concern, that's something that we've also been toying with. But again, when there is a drought, that's not even something that you can do because... Yeah. There is no water to cap at all anyway. Exactly. So uh, getting major agencies within the country to really invest in this as a developing sector, as a sector that really needs um, the brightest, the best. So getting intelligent young people who are committed to seeing this as a long-term project to invest uh, their time, their energy, their mental faculties into this is something that, yeah, we need buy-in from, from state and national level actors for sure. That sounds like a great, great goal. I just wanted to ask before we finish, you know, you guys started this, like you do rapid relief. You have obviously uh, a bunch of goals that you want to complete, but for you, for Haru, what would be the worst and best case scenario? That's a good question because I, you know, I'm I'm so uh, kind of, I'm still wetting my, my feet in this field. It's been a big responsibility for me to step into. So in a perfect world, Somalis who are abroad, right, uh, the U.S., Canada, so the North Americans, Europeans, Australians, New Zealanders, they really understand, one, the severity of these crises, you know, from the comfort of their homes in the West where water shortages, it's not impossible that there's a water shortage in, in Canada or in the U.S. or in Australia or New Zealand, but it's certainly possible, right? So put yourself in, in, in those shoes. Like, what would you do today if you couldn't? There was no water to, to wash your fruits. There was no water to shower with. There's no water to drink. Put yourself in those shoes. I don't think people really understand how vital just the idea of water is to everyday life, right? It, every factor of human life is deeply dependent on the availability, the ready availability of water. And so put yourself in those shoes. And then what would you do if if you could change that, like, what would you do if, if you could alleviate the suffering of somebody else? And so getting them to get in the mindset of being humanitarians, even if that means sometimes that we're behind the ball mm-hmm. and we're being reactive and we're playing catch up, like, don't lose hope. This is still something that's worthy. It's still something that's worth investing time and energy into. And then really, I, I tell folks, start number one with, and not this isn't being selfish, but like immediately acquire, inquire about your family back home, your immediate family. Like ask, are my, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents, cousins, are they okay? If their need is met, um, alhamdulillah, and they're doing good, try to then continue giving to like larger projects to serve entire regions or entire nations, right? But people say, oh, like what's going on? How can I help? And I'm like, well, first and foremost, have you checked in with your relatives back home? And then alhamdulillah, if they need help, Ask how you can support them. Do you do they need cash payments? Do they need foodstuffs? Do they need to, to purchase more livestock or grazing animals? Once that need is met, then you can now start thinking about like how do I support larger projects? And Hado is a good place that I, of course, we'd like to plug. Right. So Hado, we are looking to kind of expand our reach across the country, across the nation. We have uh, offices, like we said, across uh, the Somali Peninsula and. 
we try to then deliver whatever aid we can. So right now, a major initiative that we're working on is uh, in cities where there's a limited number of, we call them elgan, so like water mm-hmm. water wells that would like that are hand-pumped, trying to get those because those are really cheap and they're super effective in terms of um, small towns where there aren't these kind of multi-thousand dollar rigs. Because the really big wells that we build, those are like twenty, thirty thousand dollar projects, right? Which is like I don't know, ten dollars Canadian. <laughs> I'm seeing the exchange rate these days. <laughs> but we we can't all afford to just fundraise that one day. But you can put together a few thousand dollars with you and your friends. Two or three is all it really is, and then invest in one of those. And we have a map on our website that shows kind of interactively where we're currently installing uh, small kind of these elgans. But so best case scenario, people wake up, people care, people support however they can. Worst case scenario, back home is that there's continued lack of rainfall, yeah. right? A continued uh, desertification, a continued degradation of crops and and, and 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 kind of grazable areas. And so, climate change, hundred percent real, impossible to deny, and it's unfortunately going to impact countries that are the least polluting, uh, kind of mm-hmm. in the world, yeah. countries that have the smallest carbon footprint or the smallest greenhouse gas emission rates, those countries are going to suffer the most. Without the ability to to protect themselves as well. 100%. Uh, worst case scenario, we don't develop sustainable models to, to answer and to solve these big problems. Mm-hmm. So that's worst case scenario. But of course, alhamdulillah, we're positive people. Uh, we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will yeah. get us from point A to point B. And so every day for us is just uh, fundraise, 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 build, 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 uh, raise awareness. And so that's kind of the deal right now. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you and, you know, checking in on your family. And like, I, I was talking to my grandma and she was telling me and I was like, you know, you see it online and obviously you recognize that, you know, it's it's going on and it's real. But when you talk to people who are on the ground and understanding what they're going through and hearing from them is completely different. So I actually don't think it's selfish. I mean, we all need to take care of our families and make sure that their needs are met and that they're OK and kind of go from there. Right. Um, but how can uh, folks support Haru? So if people um, want to, <laughs> she said Haru. Haru, Haru. Is it? What does it mean? <laughs> so Haru is an acronym for Humanitarian African Relief Organization. Okay, so it's not a Somali word. I'm good. <laughs> it's it's not a Somali word, but funnily enough, it is an Oromo last name. So there's a very famous like Oromo name, Haru. All yeah. good. Okay. <laughs> How can people right now, like if people are listening to this and they want to be more involved, how can they support Haro? Thank you, Khan, for pronouncing it correctly. (laughs) But we are on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Number one, this requires no financial input from you. So if you're a broke college student, your finances aren't together, you're not in ability to to donate today. What you can do is just amplify, retweet, share, send it to your friends, blast your group chat with it. Um, across our socials, and I think we can drop them at the end of the episode. And then number two, Huddle is currently running an initiative. So if you go to our website, you'll you'll link to a donate page, and uh, you can see that there are a number of projects. When you go on there, uh, com, you're going to come to a landing page. You can do a number of donation levels. So you, if you can do 25, 50, 150, 200, 500, 10, 5, whatever it may be. You can set your donation to either monthly or annually or one time. There's a number of things that you can do. And then you can choose exactly what your donation goes to. And so you can go to the building uh, for the poor. So we have an initiative right now where we're building sustainable housing uh, for IDPs, internally displaced people across Somalia. You can put that towards that. You can put it towards COVID-19 response, uh, emergency relief, a general donation, orphan care, right? We mentioned that 
it costs only it costs forty one dollars a month to sponsor an orphan uh, for one month. And I think when it comes out, it's like six hundred a year. You can pay month to month, or you can pay yearly. We have Qurbani, so Udhiya, um, when that comes around. We have a Ramadan Iftar project where we try to feed a thousand people a day uh, for 30 days on Ramadan. And then we have our, our, our water solutions. So if you want, get a couple of your friends together uh, and say, all right, we want to build an Algan. Only $2,000, $2,000 in the city of your choosing, uh, where your family is from, anywhere really in the country. And uh, that's something you can do. And so we do have an initiative right now. Uh, Alhamdulillah, we started in November. We're trying to v- recruit... 500 volunteers who give 20 bucks monthly. And so actually, if you go on our Instagram, you can see the graphic. It's like four cups of coffee uh, because people are willing to spend <laughs> insane amounts of money on unappetizing. Okay. Don't, don't say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there's some people on this on this call right now who are doing $6 Listen, no, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I literally have my own coffee right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you got nice. But I don't do that anymore. Uh, I'm glad, Karan. I'm glad you're maturing. So the, the selling point is that if you can string together a cup of coffee every day for a week, you can sponsor an orphan. You can do twenty bucks a month, and it's continuous charity. It's the Qajariya. Goes to your, true. goes on your dunya we and your akhir account. And I don't know how true this is for Canadians, but in the U.S., it's, it's tax deductible after two fifty a year. So I already know the Canadian government is taking all your money. So <laughs> it might not even God. be worth sending you tax documents. <laughs> so he takes shots at Canada every single chance he gets. Oh, listen, man. If I if, if I could come to Canada today, I would believe me. Um, that's on the record. And so, no, that's that's what we're doing. So we're trying to recruit 500 people. Um, inshallah, we hope that uh, we can reach that goal. We're about uh, a third of the way there now. Alhamdulillah. We got a really cool Ramadan project coming up. We want everyone to be a part of. So we'll put that on our radar as it develops. Inshallah. But uh, a really cool fundraising initiative. I can't say too much yet, but soon. Cool, cool. Hey. And you said people can find you on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what your socials are, and we're also included in the description, inshallah. So our Twitter is Haro USA. That's H-A-R-O-U-S-A. Good old USA. <laughs> uh, and then our Instagram, funnily enough, is Haro Somalia. So it's Haro is H-A-R-O and then Somalia. S-O-M-A-L-I-A. Somalia. Right. And if you are a geezer and you're on Facebook... <laughs> Don't, don't be insulting, folks. Don't discriminate. Exactly. <laughs> I saw his dad was like, wait a minute, you're talking about me? <laughs> Yo, my Facebook is no, So we're on Facebook as well. It's, uh, it's Humanitarian African Relief Organization. So it's the, the full acronym. And one last thing. Do you also want to tell folks that you also have a podcast that's kind of been dead for a minute? Oh, but, you know, Lord. like they can listen to the three episodes that came out last year. <laughs> I think, I think the last time we were active. So I, I am the host of Islamic History X. I, I probably should be recording my own podcast, not making guest appearances on my friends. But yeah, we do have three episodes out. Hoping to get back in the lab soon. Yeah, it's We'd a really great, it. well-produced podcast. It kinda, I, did, I didn't need you to, to, to put that kind of heat on me at this time. We <laughs> needed that heat on you. Honestly, we need to put the pressure on. But I feel like there's been enough pressure. And if it was going to work, it would have. But you know, at least people can enjoy it. The three, the three episodes that are already out that are really good. No, inshallah. There's, there's, there's been a lot of pressure, but... As you guys can see, responding to a drought crisis has sidelined the podcast. That's true. Inshallah. Inshallah. We've mentioned forgotten people a few times in this episode, but what does it actually mean to advocate for them? Juan from Climate Justice Edmonton brings back the optimism and tells us what it's really like having these conversations in real life. My name is Juan. Uh, I'm a first 
generation immigrant from Colombia living in Amiskuchiwaskahigan, also known as Edmonton. I'm a climate organizer with Climate Justice Edmonton and with the Climate Emergency Unit. I've been organizing around climate uh, in Edmonton for the last about four years. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a lot into it, but I'm really excited to be here. Yay. Honestly, I think it's good to have the groundwork for what climate justice actually means. So, you know, we understand where we're starting from. What does it mean to you? Yeah. So I honestly, I take a lot of my definitions of climate justice from kind of the beginnings of the climate justice movement. And the beginnings of the climate justice movement was in the early 2000s. And it was both a definition that was rooted in the black experience of climate injustice and the global experience of climate injustice. So a lot of the definition of the black experience of climate injustice was based around Hurricane Katrina uh, in New Orleans. And the experience of that moment was very clearly seeing that something so big like Hurricane Katrina directly was harming black poor communities the most in New Orleans, and that in the aftermath of crisis, the people that were continued to be the most harmed, whether it be through inefficient aid by the government, whether it be through actual targeting by the police as people who were seeking aid, continuously fell on the most marginalized people. That is part of the definition that I really take into the work that I try to do. And at the global level, you started seeing more of a conversation around this global climate justice movement based around some of these environmental discussions where a lot of countries from the global south, countries like Malaysia, countries like Ethiopia, you know, a lot of really important countries started saying, oh, wait a minute, like we're talking about climate change, but the people that are leading the discussion are people from Canada. They're climate scientists from Europe, like it's important that you're able to have these discussions, but we're the ones that are going to get impacted first. And in fact, we already are. And so when I think about climate justice, I think about a system of planetary harm that is both directly impacting humans through already existing systems of oppression and already existing webs of harm, such as poverty, such as position in the world class and things like race, things like gender, mm -hmm. uh, things like disability. And it's also planetary injustice towards more than human beings, right? Animals that are going extinct, animals that are losing their habitats and ecosystems that are collapsing. Mm -hmm. Climate justice is about rethinking the opportunities around which we can respond to the climate crisis and climate change in a way that changes the conditions that led to the situation. Mm -hmm. Because Climate change isn't, it isn't a, a historic and it isn't a natural occurrence. Like we were not doomed to be in this place. We made decisions that led us to be in this place, which means that we can make decisions to get out of it too. So that makes me really hopeful. Would you say that for you, climate justice is addressing environmental racism, basically the way that it disproportionately affects poor people and the disconnect between poor people who are experiencing uh, environmental up like upheaval and the people that speak to them that, do, that do not look like them, nor do they have like any grasp of what those people are going through? Absolutely. And so much of the climate justice movement was initially informed by the environmental justice movement. And again, you get a lot of these same experiences of what we call Cancer Alley. It's like a, a place in Louisiana where a lot of toxic runoff goes in and it's it's the river. I believe it's the Mississippi. And again, it's black communities that, that get directly impacted. It's poor black Louisianian communities with higher rates of 
uh, congenital diseases with higher rates of cancer. When we talk about a place like Alberta, when we talk about a place like Canada, the only way in which we got to a place where we are extracting to such a degree that Canada became one of the global leaders in emissions was through the theft of Indigenous land and the theft of Indigenous life. And so, again, there is a discussion on it. If we're going to have real climate justice, then we need to return Indigenous land and we need to return Indigenous life. Okay, so my next question is like directly related to that. How does it feel to talk about climate justice in a place that's so, uh, honestly, an oil province like Alberta? The kind of reception you would get, how does, how's that working for you guys? It is absolutely the biggest barrier. And part of that, part of the reason for that is that, you know, for decades, the oil and gas industry has told everyone in the province, you have two options. You can either have a good job or you can have a good environment, but you can't have both. And that's never been true, right? We have tons of opportunities to get good jobs that are environmental. There is no logical reason. We're not on a path that says you have to extract, you have to extract them this way and you have to extract this amount, right? And so a lot of the reaction is oftentimes violent. Uh, luckily, I've never experienced that myself, but there's a lot of people who aren't ready to be hearing these things in part because they've been conditioned to reject it. And so I will say that it has gotten easier. I think more people see the challenge that we're facing. I think more people are, are beginning to understand that oil is not the only way. Mm-hmm. And I think that also goes hand in hand with a lot of people realizing that the oil booms of the decade prior or the decades before, it's not coming back. Mm-hmm. Jobs are being automated. Bosses don't care about employees. It's just about profit. And the best way to ensure that you get the most profit is to ensure that you have the least employees possible. So I think the, the tides really are turning on this. And and I think there's still more work to be done. A collective like you who your mission is climate justice, how easy or hard it's been to actually reach out to the people here locally? Like, is it like age dependent? Is it easier to talk to younger people and convince them about what's going on? Because I know climate change in general is like a youth centered activism. So I wanted to know how that was for you guys. Yeah. So Climate Justice Edmonton specifically as a collective is youth based. The majority of the people that we engage with are young people. And so... It's definitely an easier uh, cohort yeah. to speak to about this issue, in part because people are scared and people really see this as an issue that they're going to be facing in their lives. Right? And for me, part of what got me involved is I used to think that this was a problem for one generation after me, two generations after me, mm-hmm. until I realized, actually, no, it's for right now, like it's happening right now and it's going to hurt me right now if I don't do anything about it. And so I think a lot of people are waking up to that. So I would say it's not universally easy. There are people who are resistant. And I think that especially in a province like Alberta, where there is such a narrative and there's such a this big, you know, giant myth that's uh, young people come work in oil and gas like we got your backs, which to some people has been has been true. Like, I, I won't lie. It has been true for a lot of people. It is easier with the younger people, but not always. One thing that does really work for us especially for Climate Justice Edmondson, is that it's not just about climate. It's about the conditions that we live in. It's about the ways in which we're allowed to live. And so a lot of the times, people who work in oil and gas will come up to us and say, you hate us because you hate our jobs, and you hate us because you think we're the enemy. We're not the enemy. We heat your homes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, again, this idea that, like, you can either have a good environment or you can have good jobs. So us versus them. Exactly. And so a lot of our responses are like, that's not true. Like, you can have a good job, 
And it doesn't have to be an oil and gas. You've been told that the only way to do it is an oil and gas, right? But there's thousands of carbon, of low carbon jobs around, around this province, right? Like think about all the people who work in childcare. Think about all the people who work in long-term care, education, healthcare. Those are important green jobs that are being done every day that are low carbon, that keep this province running, that keep our communities running. And maybe some of those jobs, we don't know about them yet. Right. And this is this is the moment where we put our thinking caps on and we think, what is the future that we deserve to live in? Let's let's think together. Let's act together. And let's actually like start realizing that the future of work is an environmental one. And it's not an oil and gas like there is no future in oil and gas. And the longer we wait, the harder that wake up call is going to be. Do you think that the notion of climate change in Alberta is a little bit like abstract to people unless it's like something that's like hitting them in the face? For example, like the Fort McMurray, like horrific forest fires that they had, unless it's something of that scale. Do you think that climate change in the climate conversation is a little bit like far away from people? Like they're just like, oh, a future that I can't see. So this is another yes and no answer. Uh, yes, it is, because even though we know that climate change is here, we know that we still have a, a, a really long window in which we can act before it gets really bad. And like the th- when, what I mean by really bad is the effects of climate change create further effects on climate change. So if the Amazon is on fire and we can't stop it from burning out, then the amount of carbon being released by the fire is going to create further climate change. That's, that's a runoff effect, and we don't want to be there. But there is a window that we can act in. And a lot of the conversations that we're having with people is saying, we need to act before 2030. Otherwise, you're not going to get the normal that you think you're going to get. But to someone who's thinking, I need to ensure that I can feed my family tomorrow. I need to make sure that I can get to work. I need to make sure that I have a roof over my head in two weeks, in one hour. You know, a question of eight years matters, but it's not important. And it's not important when you compare it to the fact that there are things that matter right now. So part of the, part of the challenge is, is proving that urgency, but also part of the challenge is saying we can make things better right now to ensure that we never have to worry about them eight years from now. When you say we, is it like an individual basis or government level, society level? Who can make change in this, in the climate conversation? That's a, that's a super great question. When I say we, I say we as everyday Albertans, as, you know, the three of us in this call, as, as your neighbor, as someone from your mosque, as someone from your dog walking group, right? Like, you know, civil society. Uh, and so it's really thinking about the traditional view of power says that the people on the top make the decisions and then we just have to live with them. But our view of power is not all, those people all got there because we decided to allow them to be there, right? And there are various pillars that exist around the society that we can knock down if we want them to act in the way that we want them to. It's kind of, it's kind of elaborate, like, I guess, like social movement theory. But for me, it is about people power. It is about activating as many people as possible, as many communities as possible, even if they don't think that they have a role in climate change or like in climate change activism, like every person does because every person can contribute to something bigger that can then lead to the change that we need. Okay, so you're empowering regular people to believe in themselves in the sense that they like as a collective, you have more power than individually. Yeah, and one thing one thing I will say, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of the time when I think about climate change, when I see things happening elsewhere in the world or 
literally basically in my own backyard, like I feel hopeless a lot. Like I feel hopeless a lot because climate change feels like something that we can't take on. Climate change feels like something that how could one person really possibly do something? But when you're in a group with people who agree with you and who say we can take this on and we can make an answer, like that is one of the only times that I say, you know, maybe I'm not so hopeless actually. Maybe there actually is an opportunity for change and that itself is part of a remedy to, to this issue of climate change. Like one of the biggest problems with climate change is that it makes you feel paralyzed with fear that you can't do anything. And the truth is that you can do something and that the only way to do it is to like combine and unite with people like you to like get the changes that we need. Is that what motivated you guys to start your collective? I don't know if you are one of the people who started it, but is that the reason why you guys decided to just go ahead and do it? So I wasn't one of the first people. I The organization started around 2016, I believe. Yeah. I joined in 2019 after a few things, right? It was it was definitely that feeling of hopelessness uh, around climate. I had traveled back to Colombia for, for a few weeks to visit some family. And I mean, Colombia has a lot of hot places. Colombia has a lot of cold places. And I was at a place that, you know, where I grew up where I did not have a lot of experiences of it being that hot. And I'm also someone that doesn't really sunburn. And I got a really bad sunburn being up there. Uh, it was on like a family farm. So that was like a, like it was a physical shock, like a literal physical shock of being burnt in a place where I'd never been burnt. It was the, the real shock of reading the inter, uh, the intergovernmental panel on climate change's report that said we have 10 years to act before we get this runaway climate change. And it was just seeing the really incredible work that was being done by Climate Justice Edmondson that, you know, told me like, what are you waiting for? You know, like, what are you waiting for? Why aren't you getting involved? There's so much opportunity for change and, and I haven't turned back. <laughs> so, so I'm glad I joined. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like a lot of people need so much more clarification of like the specific roles that they could possibly play to like mitigate the effects of climate change. Because I remember, I don't know if it was like last year or um, early last year when there was pictures of like, I think a volcano that erupted it was underwater. It literally looked like a gate to hell or something. And I just stared at it and I was just like, okay, then what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, what am I, Juidia, in Edmonton supposed to do about something that looks like it's like the last day or something? What am I supposed to do about that? So I remember just feeling like not it's it's past the point of being hopeless or helpless about it. It's just like, you know, just close <laughs> Twitter for the day because there's nothing you can do about it. And you can tell from like the attitudes of people tweeting about the, that issue as well, that a lot of people have that sort of attitude because they don't know what your role could be in mitigating climate what can you do specifically today to you know help yeah. in some also way? i think a lot of people don't know what that looks like to them it's like them versus us i don't know if you heard about like the insulate britain like that thing that happened where they were trying to get houses insulated and the attitude of people towards climate activists was so negative that i was shocked because people just watch the news and they, they see the news and they see that, oh, we want these people off the streets, but they don't know the cause or the reason why people are protesting or the reason why people are standing up, like the impacts this has on a real life human being. Definitely more clarification to understand what what actually are these large words that people keep throwing around. I, I will say like for years, for literal decades, like we've been told 
If you recycle, it's going to make things better. If you take less hot showers, it's going to make things better. If you use a paper straw, it's going to make things better. Have things gotten better? No. And I'm not saying like, don't take shorter showers. I'm not saying don't, you know, try to minimize your, your plastic waste. Those things are important. But at the end of the day, we're not going to solve a planetary problem through individual actions. Right. The things that actually need to change is that we need to drastically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, which is already being done done by things through, for example, uh, coal phase outs, uh, which in some places are not happening fast enough. But coal is the biggest emitter of, of greenhouse gases. But in a place like Alberta, evidently, we need to stop producing and exporting petroleum and not just in part because we have one of the hardest to processes and most environmentally damaging uh, petroleums, which is oil sand petroleum, but also because of the fact that everyone says like, oh, well, if you act, then like, you know, China is going to keep producing, Russia is going to keep producing, the United States is going to keep producing. So what? Let them like that's their problem. Like, here are the things that we can do now. Not only are we at, a, uh, if we choose to act before everyone else, we're at a benefit because we get to be early adopters of new policies. That means that we get an advantage as, you know, as early adopters. But it also means that we show to other countries and we show to climate activists in other countries that it's possible, right? If we all wait for someone else to act, then we're all just going to race to the bottom. And the race to the bottom means that we all burn, right? And obviously we don't all burn, but like, it's not the world that we want to be living in. And so there are strong policies that we can be implementing literally starting today that would severely change the quality of life of people and ensure that life is livable for people two generations from now, three generations from now, seven generations from now. For me, I want to show people that we can live a fossil free fuel life and have a good life. We got to get as many people on board as possible. Um, I will say, I know you had one question and it was kind of based on this idea of like, what can I tell your listeners about why they should be a part of the cause? Uh, and what's one thing, what's one thing they can do to make change? And if I haven't convinced you so far that that's okay, I had a really good conversation a few weeks ago with someone from, from Al Rashid Mosque in Edmonton. And I really asked them, I'm like, why do you think people aren't really, you know, why do you think people from the community aren't getting involved in this? And the response was like, First of all, you're wrong. It's not one community at Al-Rashid. It's various communities. You know, you have a, a Somali community. You have um, a Pakistani community. You have uh, a Turkish community. You know, communities from all over the world. So, you know, my mistake, right? But what I would really tell people is, like, ask your parents, ask your grandparents, like, what was it like growing up back home? Like, what were your favorite things about back home? Like, what are the things that you really miss? And, and what was that environment like? What was the nature like? What were your favorite fruits to eat, right? What are the things that if you were to taste now, like would bring tears to your eyes and, and start having real genuine conversations about like we're losing some of those things. And I, and I, and I was starting to get so real, but like, like we're losing a lot of these things. And for me, the history of the environmental movement, even though I take a lot of inspiration from, you know, harms against racialized peoples and marginalized peoples, environmentalists are overwhelmingly white. And I want more black young people in the movement. I want more young brown people in the movement. I want more people's um, grandparents in the movement. We need to be able to connect with people in a way that makes it clear that there is room here for everyone. Start talking to the people in your community about these really important things and start connecting with them in a way that that they understand. Because we all live on the same planet. It's a communal home. 
and we all have a relationship to it that might be different from the person next to us, but we can always make common ground that allows us to unite to fight this this really large problem that we will win. And I really believe that when I say that we will win and we're going to come out much better having one. Uh, the optimism is refreshing. <laughs> also, you made me nostalgic for a place I've never been to and I'm going to talk to my parents about it. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Juan can be found on his personal accounts on Instagram at juanfe.va and on Twitter at juanfe.lipe underscore va. Climate Justice Edmonton can be found on Instagram at Climate Justice Edmonton and on Twitter at CJ Edmonton. We can't really talk about climate change without mentioning fast fashion. Our last guest, Sophia, highlights the intersectionality of the fashion industry and how the clothes we buy have a lot more depth. Hi everyone, my name is Sophia, my Chinese name is Yang Yacheng, and I use she her first pronouns. I'm currently living on the traditional and ceded and um, ancestral territory of the Coast Salish peoples in Vancouver, Canada. I was born in northern China at a place called Daqing, which really translates to big celebration, because that's where they discovered oil. Yes, my parents are both um, oil and gas engineers, and I'm a loud belt environmentalist, so dinner table conversations are pretty interesting. I moved to Vancouver when I was 17 to go to UBC and I studied uh, natural resources conservation in the UBC forestry program. So my career path is a little bit unconventional now working in the ethical fashion industry, but I also work as a a sustainability project manager of urban greening during the day as well at Princess Trust Canada. So that's more related to my degree. Can you tell us a bit more about threading change, the kind of work you do and why you feel it's really important? Starting Change, we officially launched in October 2020. Um, we're an ethical fashion and circular economy youth-led consultancy and also not-for-profit. And our mission statement is a 6S, which is a feminist, fossil fuel-free fashion future, which wow. we believe really touches on the intersectional aspect of fashion that has to do with racial justice, climate justice, gender justice, and also labor. So it's a bit about us. Wow, you guys are doing incredible work. Honestly, reading about the kind of work that you're doing was really opened my eyes to a lot. I mean, we we hear a lot of, um, we hear about, you know, fast fashion and how we can dress better and be more ethical in our shopping choices. So kind of seeing the work that you're doing, shedding light on that was really insightful. And so one of the questions I had for you is how do our clothes impact the environment and how do we know whether the clothes that we purchase um, are causing harm? There's so much harm that it causes. Um, I just want you to close your eyes and imagine for a bit. Just count in your head how many pieces of clothing you have. Because it's likely that a lot of people in the global north probably have more than 100 articles of clothing. If you count shoes, socks, underwear, jackets, all that stuff. So times 100 by the 7 billion people in the world, there's so much clothing in the world that we already possess. In addition to all the ones that are in stores and warehouses that are in production not being sold. So mm-hmm. the problem right now is that we're really looking at clothing and fashion in a linear economy, whereas it's important to make it circular. The bigger problem is that we've also started to look at clothing as commodity and not stories. With brands such as Fashion Nova, Shein, Forever 21, that's churning out clothing at such a rapid rate for super duper cheap. The true cost of that clothing is not reflected because it's at the expense of garment workers and people in the global south that barely make a living wage. Some harms that fashion causes, I mean, if you just want to talk about the environmental 
um, aspects of it, you know, polluting waterways in Bangladesh and Vietnam and the Philippines with using lots of toxic dyes to dye our denim jeans. Denim is such a water intensive um, fabric to produce. Another one is also people cutting down a, a valuable agriculture land to make room to grow cotton and some people organic cotton currently. And that's how it kind of interlinks to the social aspect as well, because one of the greatest examples, the worst examples, I should say, of modern day slavery is happening right now in the northeastern region of China. China, um, many Uyghurs, so Muslim faith folks are being enslaved right now to farm for organic cotton, and they work 365 days a year. They have get no breaks, and they also have no ways of paying their bills or themselves. So that humanitarian aspect of fashion is a, is a dangerous one. Another impact also has to do with the amount of um, fat shaming and body shaming that come at the expense of women, especially young women, and young women being impressionable, you know, working industry and the abuse that they face from all this um, marketing, whether it's influencer marketing, social media marketing. So you can really see the harm that fashion does from a social, environmental, labor um, perspective. And it shouldn't be this way. Clothing is meant to be a way that we can express ourselves and feel free and get very artistic and creative. Ways that I tell people to um, really help the fashion ecosystem, there's a lot of different ways. I'll give out three main ones. First of all, know that individual choices do make an impact, even if you don't think so, it does. You can start with talking with your neighbors, with your friends. You can start with not buying new clothes, swapping everything, going to thrift stores, the seven R's of fashion also includes repairing, um, you know, repurposing, reusing, and recycling. Um, Metro Vancouver, where I'm living right now, they have a great list on their website of all the different recycling facilities available. We can actually recycle your clothing. Now, not all clothing is recyclable so the other r i want to tell you is research do your research check out which fabrics are recyclable which ones are not look into labels understand how polyester is produced how it's synthetic understand how cotton can be recycled understand the different ways you're washing your clothing and how that sheds microplastics into the wash and how you can avoid that and the last one is also represent um, talk to your governors talk to your counselors talk to your mias talk to those around you to have more recycling facilities to ratify um, extended producer responsibility policy, which is EPR, which means that if a big brand is selling a piece of clothing, they're also responsible for recycling it afterwards. So the onus doesn't fall all on the consumer. I want everyone to know that while lessening your individual consumption and also not buying clothes is one way of creating change, but the ways to create change isn't only through with your money. You can also you know, be an activist, represent, talk to the government, advocate for policy choices, but most important of all is understanding how inherently broken the fashion system is and position yourself in a way that advocates for a circular economy instead. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think with that being said, how can we shop ethically considering, you know, the cost of clothing? Like you said, a lot of these fast fashion um, clothing come at a cost, right? They are cheaper than other clothing that you might buy. So how can we shop ethically considering that as well as sizing and availability and things like that? Yeah, definitely. That's a good question. Um, I think when you I want everyone, I, something that I've done as well as my team is really, you know, map out what clothing you have in your closet. Because studies mm-hmm. have shown that we only wear about 20 to 30% of our closet. And for a lot of people, it's even less than that. So map out what we already have in your closet. There's apps where you can do that. Like Open Wardrobe is an app we previously worked with that is like um, AI for closets. So you can, you know, take a picture and upload it into the app. So don't buy something if it's something mm-hmm. else really similar because you don't really need it. And also try, you know, thrifting, swapping, repairing, um, and 
also even vintage is a great way to do that instead of buying new. If you have to buy new, think about what purpose, like why you're buying. Is it for a present? Does that person actually want new clothing or are you just assuming that? If you have to buy something new, you know, for a school trip or doing um, work or in the field or something, think about there's a way you can talk to an employer to order from um, people that are already vetted, that are ethical and also um, have really done the work to make sure the supply chains are in good standing. So the way you can also do that is check out our Global Innovation Story Map, GISM. You can go to threadingchange.org slash story map. We profiled over 50 brands all around the world that are really leading the way in terms of ethics, sustainability, and fair pay, and buy from those brands that are really doing the right thing first. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we're definitely going to include the link to that in our description so that people can go visit that. And for our last question, I think you kind of touched upon it in the beginning, but I'll but I'll ask it again, is intersectionality is part of your mission. So can you tell us why it's important with regards to sustainable clothing? So for those of who might not know, um, intersectionality was, cor- was coined by an amazing Black activist and scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw. And it pretty much details on the fact that we all have different intersecting identities. Um, you know, different issues affect people in ways that are a combination, you know, of different societal structures. So someone could be facing, you know, um, gender injustice, but also labor injustice. Someone could be facing racial injustice, but also gender injustice. So there's different layers of that. When it comes to fashion, it's evident that those in the global south and mostly women who work in garment um, factory heavy countries such as India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, China, and Sri Lanka face some of these issues that are intersecting identities the most. They face issues of being racialized people working in a workplace where it's mostly men on top, not paying them enough for the, un- the work that they're doing. They face, they face issues of you know breathing in toxic fumes and chemicals and have to deal with dying a pair of jeans and not being compensated. And because they're also, also women, so they have childcare taking and also, you know, bearing abilities they have to handle. And there's generational trauma passed on, you know, on and on and on again, because a lot of people born into working in the fashion industry and they can't escape that. So I think for us, why intersectionality is such a big part of our mission is because we understand that, you know, if we try to do something to help raise awareness about, you know, less climate emissions and how fashion is really affecting the environment in a negative way, we can't only talk about that without addressing the fact that it's also a lot of women that are being harmed in this circumstance. We also can't talk about that unless we talk about the fact that there's a lot of racialized women that are being affected in this way because it's important to understand the power and privilege that a lot of these brands hold and the scary thing about fashion is that you know in some industries you know there's can be government regulation um you know there can be regulation for less emissions or you know can be quotas or subsidies um or even what's happening in russia right now you know people are you know we don't want russian products that's the way the government's intervening in the case of fashion who holds the power? The line is really blurred. Sometimes it's government, but it's mostly these big brands. And these big brands have a lot of investor interests. So it could be the investors. And sometimes it's con- just consumers. Because the Instagram, um, you know, the Instagram and TikTok fashion machine is insane. Trend yeah. cycles have decreased drastically from before. It was like, you know, maybe a couple of trends a year. Now it's a couple of trends every couple of weeks. And it just keeps going, going on, on, and on, where fashion mm-hmm. is being produced at such an exponential rate. So who is really in charge? Nobody really knows. And that's the problem is without knowing who's in charge, without enough data, it's hard to regulate. So that's why we have intersectionality as part of our mission to better understand how we can work more collaboratively together to, you know, see how these different intersecting um, identities are coexisting in place and also see how we can provide um, intersectional solutions for everybody. Wow, I I love that so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Um, We're really excited to continue to see the work that you're doing and hopefully see, you know, some form of change in this sector in the future.
You can find Sophia on Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn at Threading Change, where they're also hiring for a business development manager. Make sure to check them out. And with that, we conclude this episode. Thank you so much to our co-hosts for this episode, Juadia, and all of our incredible guests, Dr. Swain, Mahmoud, Juan, and Sophia for joining us and enlightening us. We hope all of you listening were able to learn from them. You can find us at A Bomb Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this episode, so please let us know. You can also send us questions anonymously on Curious Cat at A Bomb Podcast, and you can email us at abondchronicles at gmail.com. All links, resources, and socials will be linked in our description. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.